It's such a thrill for me to hear you sing and hear your testimonies and to feel the sense of worship that is going on here and continues to be perpetuated. It's a thrill. I want you to know I get to travel a little bit. I get to speak at universities throughout the country. And I want you to know, in my opinion, this is the most unique place I have ever been when it comes to the quality of worship and heart and the commitment to the Lordship of Christ and to His Word. It's just an atmosphere that you can't hardly describe, but I want you to not take it for granted. Be encouraged. This is a blessed opportunity. In my estimation, your college years, the greatest of your life. It's been six years, and Karen, my wife, and my daughter, Wendy, were still adjusting to Southern culture. I grew up in New Jersey, went to school in New England, then Virginia, then out here to California to minister. The South is different. We, uh, we, when we first got there, some of you, well, some of you, the Steve Miracle and Tatlock and Kelly Bird and some others helped us move when we went to Alabama. And when we got there and we unpacked our waterbed, someone had graciously taken the water mattress and wrapped it around my gas tank to the motorcycle to, to protect the tank. But when we undid the, the mattress, it smelled like we were sleeping in an Arco refinery. And so we had to go out and purchase a mattress, and the first thing we did was go downtown Birmingham, large department store warehouse, and uh, we're looking for a mattress. And it was late October. Unbeknownst to me, Alabama was playing Penn State that day on national television. And as we're searching through the warehouse to find someone help us to buy a mattress, we could find no helpers. And finally, we located in the back corner of the warehouse a group of six or seven elderly, gray-haired, blue-haired type ladies who were watching a 13-inch black-and-white screen. They were spitting in these little cans, and they were saying, Roll Tide! I told my wife, I said, Honey, it's different here. There's a new song out on our radio stations. I heard it not long ago. You Might Be a Redneck is its title says if you have a dog and a wallet on a chain, you might be a redneck. said if you mow the yard around the double wide and you find a second car, you might be a redneck. And my favorite line, the most theological of all, said, hey, you laugh at us? Well, I'll tell you, you're all going to be surprised when you get to the pearly gates and there stands Peter and he says, y'all get in the truck. We're going up to the big house. It's different there. But we love it. It's beautiful. We've enjoyed ministering to those people. But we are still adjusting. Take your Bible. Turn to Psalm, or rather Proverbs, chapter 7. I come to the pulpit today on purpose. I've determined in my heart that I will preach this every opportunity I get. I come to the pulpit today concerned about the flood. Not the flood that has caused California so much trauma over the last ten days, but the flood of moral compromise which is epidemic in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm a pastor. I live in the world of people. And in my analysis, I have never seen heretofore a period of time when there has been a greater number of individuals who are falling victim to moral compromise. It's endless. I mean, at some point, you, I, I've become numb 
when someone walks up to me and says, have you heard? I no longer get surprised or shocked. I'm numb because of the proliferation of moral failure among the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you listen at all, if you read at all, if you're tuned in at all, it's epidemic. On my own staff, over these last six months, we've had to deal with it twice. I sat in an office not more than a month ago, and I watched a man, a leading member in our church, look into the eyes of his wife and confess to her his unfaithfulness. And I remember with graphic detail the magnitude of the effect on her heart and life. I talked to her a week ago. She said, Harry, this is the hardest thing I could ever imagine. If you would have told me how difficult it is to deal with the trauma in my life, I would have given up. A week ago before he returned back to college, one of the guys that I've invested a good bit of my time in disclosed to me his struggle in his moral life. It's epidemic. I mean, it's in the music scene. You've heard about it. A prominent Christian musician falls victim, loses his ministry on his way to contemporary pop charts. What's going on? I want to ask two questions this morning as we come to Proverbs 7. Number one, why do good people do bad things? Because I know some of the folks that have fallen down have been charlatans and and heretics. But some of the people I work with, some of the people I know, were good people. They were people that had a testimony. They were people that led individuals to Christ. They were people that were dedicated to the cause. They fell down. What happened? Why do good people do bad things? The second question is, how can you avoid falling victim to the same dishonoring acts, the same destructive choices? What can you do to prevent moral decline? Someone said to me not long ago after the series of events that transpired in my ministry, Harry, how can we trust anyone? I mean, you all talk good. You speak of Christ. You talk of integrity. But but where is it? Why should we believe your message? Hear me, young people. All of the truth in the world, apart from the credibility of a life of integrity, has no power. There are vessels of honor, Paul said. And it's out of those vessels of honor that the Spirit of Christ pours forth His transforming work. You have power to speak in transforming ways when you speak the truth out of an honorable life. No one wants to hear you otherwise. You're in the greatest place in the world hearing some of the greatest truth and communicators in the world the finest biblical expositor alive today, but you can take it all in and without a credible platform to communicate it from, your message is powerless. The message today is on integrity. I want to give you several principles out of Proverbs 7, which has been my meditation over the last six months. Why good people go wrong. Principle number one. Number one, they neglect the Word of God. Read with me Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, the wise man Solomon, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, 
You are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. Now notice verse 5, that they, the word of God, may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Proverbs chapter 7 is a morality play. It's wisdom applied to moral issues. And wisdom personified takes a good hard look at life and paints a graphic picture out of life to help us see the, the pattern, the elements, the movements that lead one down the primrose path to moral destruction. What are the elements? Here's the wise man Solomon coming to the issue of the day and saying, number one, people get in trouble when they neglect the Word of God. Because the Word of God protects you like a shield from illicit satisfaction and sordid involvements. The Word of God has the, is the means, the divine protection, which keeps us from moral default. Four things that happen when we neglect the Word of God. Verse 1, we fail to retain it. We fail to memorize it. Notice what he says. Treasure my commandments within you. Thy word, David said, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. When you neglect the Word of God, when you fail to memorize it, do you know I think it's a conspiracy? I know very few adults that memorize the Word of God. I think the conspiracy goes like this. Once you get out of Awana, you don't have to memorize verses anymore. Somehow you don't need them. To neglect the Word of God is to fail to treasure it. The word keep means to store it in like a storehouse of treasure. Are you memorizing the Scripture? Are you hiding it in, in your heart that you might not sin against God? Secondly, not only do you fail to retain it, but notice what it says, you fail to value it. It says in verse 2, keep my commandments, a reiteration of the first statement, and my teaching as the apple of your eye, as the most precious commodity you have. Two years ago, I was wielding a hammer. I was using a hammer as a chisel with another hammer. And I was just tapping. And all of a sudden, I noticed, I felt something in my eye. And then I looked up into the bright sunlight and I saw like drops coming down into my eye. And I thought, what have I done? And a piece of the, the head of one of the hammers had come off and penetrated my right eye. And I was bleeding internal in my eye. And I was two surgeries later, two painful surgeries later, a month and a half where I had no vision out of this eye at all. You know what I know about this eye? This eye is very valuable to me. Harry Walls has safety glasses in every area of his home. I've got safety glasses in my car. I drive a Miata convertible and I don't, I'm afraid a bug might come over the windscreen and nail me in the eye. You know, this is precious. I'm going to do anything I can to protect my eye. You know what the Word of God ought to be precious to you? Do you value it? Do you memorize it? This concept of value is used of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where it says of Israel that God kept him, Israel, as the apple of his eye. Now listen to God through Moses describe what it means to keep someone as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. To keep someone as 
the apple of their eye is to treat them as an eagle would treat its young. An eagle who cares for the young, who catches the young when they fall out of the nest. An eagle who is consumed with her babes. On the airplane out, there was a woman so consumed with her child that people in two rows moved away from her. The baby was making such a ruckus, she was totally clueless as to the way the child was impacting the passengers to the right or to the left. She was consumed with her child. That baby was the most precious thing in her life. People who fall down fail to value the Word of God like mothers value babies. Like an eagle values its young. Like someone would value their eye. Do you value the Word of God? How precious is it to you? It is crucial in an effort to maintain moral integrity. Thirdly, not only do they neglect the Word of God by failing to memorize it, by failing to value it, but thirdly, verse 3, they fail to review it, to rehearse it. Note what it says with regard to the words of God. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Put little strings of reminder on your fingers because your fingers are always in front of you as reminders. You know the little deal, you don't want to forget something, so you tie something on your finger. All meant to remind you to consider doing something that you ought to do. Solomon says, wise people keep the Word of God out in front of them as with reminders to rehearse the truths of God because those truths feed and protect the soul. I have a buddy who turns on his computer screen. He's an entrepreneurial real estate agent, and when his screen comes on, it says, remember the Word of God. Remember, it's He that gives you the power to make wealth. Post-its are great. You can put them over your speedometer and accomplish two things at the same time. You're reminding that the Word of God is important. Keep the Word of God in front of you. Carry three-by-five cards, reminders of the truths of God. Don't neglect the Word of God. And then fourthly and finally, develop a familiar relationship with it. Verse 4, say to wisdom, you're my sister, relate to it. Call understanding your intimate friend. Become so familiar. Develop a, I'm going to coin a word here, a comfortability with the Word of God. You know, some people look at this. I have a guy in my discipleship group who says, you know, it's so hard for me to read this. I just don't understand it. It's like a foreign language to me. For some of us, it is. It's not like a sister who you've known all your life. It's not an intimate friend that you enjoy being with because you're not familiar with it. If you neglect the Word of God, and you fail to develop a living and vital relationship with it. Hear me. It's not a matter of if you'll go down. It's a matter of when you'll go down. If you fail to memorize it, if you fail to value it, if you fail to rehearse it, if you fail to develop a relationship with it, it will not feed, fill, and protect your soul. And yet, that is one of the chief means that God has provided us as protection against moral decline. Let me tell you one of the reasons why I think that's so important. The Word of God satisfies hungry souls. David said, as with marrow and fatness, as with the richest of food, Psalm 63, I feast on God. Now listen to this. You ought to write this down. Well, we ought to turn to it. Proverbs 27. Look at this. Look at this principle. I think this is the greatest moral preventative available today to keep a life holy. 
And it flows out of the reality of what the Word of God produces in your life. But look at this nugget of truth. Proverbs 27, 7. A sated man, a saturated man, a satisfied man does what? He loathes honey. But, notice what it says, to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Let me suggest to you the attitude dynamic of immorality. Hungry hearts. Have you ever been shopping when you're hungry? I mean, even the rice cakes look good. (laughs) But if you eat a big meal, a satisfying meal, Vincenzo's pizza type meal, go shopping then. The glazed donuts have no power. Because a satisfied man isn't hungry. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12. Don't be immoral like godless Esau. Verse 16. Immoral, godless Esau. Who did what? Who sold his birthright for a single meal. Good people do stupid things when they are hungry. They will eat someplace. The moral solution, Proverbs 5, to immorality is drink water from your own cistern. Be so exhilarated in the love of your wife and in appropriate relationships that you have no need for another relationship. Listen to this. If the Word of God is the feasting food of your soul, you're not hungry for immoral behavior. Because the sated man loathes honey. I'm sorry, I'm not interested, thank you. My soul is satisfied. Can I suggest to you that the reason the Word of God is such a helpful tool in protecting us from immoral behavior because it satisfies the hunger that drives us to such temporal fulfillment? Feed on it. Feast on it. It'll protect you. It'll guard you. The path to moral compromise begins firstly with a neglect of the Word of God. Secondly, notice if you will, back in Proverbs chapter 7, the second thing good people do on the path to falling down. Verse 6. This is wisdom talking. Implication is wisdom does something that unwise people do not do. Verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked I looked out through my lattice. I just want to stop and suggest something here out of verse 6. Good people who do bad things fail to learn lessons from life. What wisdom does is takes a good hard look out his window and he observes something transpiring in the natural realm which brings wisdom to his heart which will ultimately form a guardian to his soul. Turn to Proverbs chapter 24, if you will, to see this principle again rehearsed for us. Proverbs 24, verse 30. Hear wisdom speaking. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Now look at verse 32, Proverbs 24. When I saw it, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. That's what wisdom does. 
It's in touch with the reality of life's experiences and draws wise conclusions. I mean, what's the dumbest thing you've ever seen? I was watching a film clip of the Hurricane Aniki come into the Hawaiian Islands. The clip I saw had a car stranded on a coastal highway, flooded. The ocean waves were washing up over this roadway and there was a flooded car. I couldn't tell if anyone was in it. But I noticed back behind it on dry pavement was another vehicle occupied, watching the vehicle stranded in the way. And not too long, a mighty wave washed up over that highway and swept that car stranded into the ocean. And then I watched as car number two backed up and then went for it. And he got about as far as car number one. And then being stranded on the flooded portion of the highway, there he sat, cameras rolling, huge wave comes in off of the ocean, picks up that car and washes it out to sea. Now, is that not the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life? I mean, what was going through the man's mind? Oh, that won't happen to me. Oh, car number one, my car's better. It's got deeper, deeper channels in the treads or something. I'll make it. I have a question for you. How many times have you seen people fall down? We all have. What have you learned from it? I ask every one of the guys I happen to know, hey, what happened to you? Without exception, they all say, God and His Word was not a centerpiece of my life. But you know, wisdom has the ability to learn lessons from life. You know, I got myself in the bad places at the wrong time. I got lean in my soul. I got careless with my choices. I began to watch things I shouldn't watch. I became involved in behaviors I shouldn't. I took somebody home and I shouldn't have. Learn from that. Don't be stupid. There are others that have fallen down that will be glad to tell you what to avoid. Learn lessons from life. Look through life's windows and learn something. That's principle number two, I think. Number one, they neglect the Word of God, Proverbs chapter 7. Secondly, they fail to learn lessons from life. Thirdly, notice it, verse 7, they fail to choose in advance. Verse 7, I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, Proverbs 7, 7, a young man lacking sense. Now, if you study the book of Proverbs, the Hebrew word for naive means someone who hasn't matured morally. They are individuals who do not, have not developed a clear moral standard of conduct to guide their life. He's just not made up his mind. He's naive. It's not that he's blatantly wicked, setting out to do wicked things. He's just not blatantly righteous. He hasn't said, I'm going to do wrong, but he hasn't said, I'm going to do right either. He's kind of on the moral fence. He's going with the flow. He's a situation ethicist. He's somebody who says, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. He's somebody who is biblically seducible. Every one of the persons I have interviewed relative to the issue of moral compromise, not a one of them has said, I set out to do this. Not a one of them said, I got up one morning and decided I'm going to be an immoral man today. I'm just going to trade the farm today. But without exception, they were individuals who were not 
blatantly determined and tenaciously committed to a moral conduct which says in no way, no case, and in no place will I do this. I have not made up my mind. I don't go to those kind of movies. I don't go to those kinds of clubs. I don't hang out with those kinds of people. Not I might. I don't. A naive person is a person who has not determined, I will do right. I'm seducible. You get me in the right place with the right people, with the right opportunity, and I'm gone. That's moral immaturity. That's a naive man. And people who fall down are people who haven't chosen in advance. I am committed wholeheartedly and unreservedly to the path of holiness and morality. I cannot be dissuaded. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. This man isn't going. Is that in your heart? <laughs> I remember traveling to Los Angeles in 1981 with a group of college students from Liberty University. We were going to the inner city, south central L.A. We had a trailways bus loaded with college students. Our driver's name was Denny. He was a fun driver. He was a good driver. Somewhere in the middle of the West, perhaps Arizona, maybe New Mexico, I-40, they were doing construction, and there were seeming like miles of these big orange barrels that were dividing the lanes, the passing lane from the regular lane. And the bus moved over, and Mark, our captain of our basketball team at that time, sitting behind Denny, said, Denny, what do you think would happen to one of those barrels if you hit it with a bus? Denny said, I can't do that. It's illegal. Denny, nobody will know. We're in the middle of nowhere. What do you think would happen? Do you know that it wasn't just a little while until the first big orange barrel bounced off of the right fender of that bus and catapulted off into the desert? And it was like he got addicted to it. And there was barrels just bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And we left debris from a mile or more. And everybody was just ecstatic. You know what Denny was? Seducible. He was a guy who would have never hit those barrels on his own, would he? No, he could stay in that lane. But under the right influence, the right opportunities, Denny could be had. And he got convinced. And there was a mile of orange barrels to prove his moral naivety. Beloved, hear me today. If you're a college student in the United States of America today, you had better determine in your mind there are things I'll do and there's things that I won't do. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how much fun it looks like it'll be. I'm not going. Because I am committed to being a man or a woman of integrity. A man or a woman who is holy. A man and a woman who is determined, I'm going to be morally sound. I'm going to be pure for the benefit of my future mate, for the benefit of the kingdom of Christ. I'm going to live holy. Without that commitment, it's not if you'll fall down, it's a matter of when you do. Principle number four, and we're running out of time. Verse eight. 
Notice what wisdom observes. This young man who hasn't chosen in advance to live morally upright, verse 8, passes through the street near her corner, a reference to the strange foreign woman, the adulteress. And he takes the way to her house. I think verse 8 is very obvious. This man, people, good people who fall down, are not only people who neglect the Word of God, they're not only people who fail to learn lessons from life, they fail to choose in advance their moral conduct, but they also flirt with fire. They're in places they shouldn't be. They risk it. They live on the edge. They're in the parts of town and places that will lend them no no benefit in terms of their moral integrity. Verse 8 just simply says this guy was hanging out in the wrong place where the wrong kinds of things occurred. And hear it. If you do, it's not if you'll fall down, it's when. If you flirt with fire, I have a man, an architect, who's in my discipleship group. He travels all over the country. The first thing he does when he walks into a motel room is not hit the channel and surf for a while to the clicker, but rather he pulls the plug on the cable TV. His statement is, I don't want to flirt with it. I have a hard time when something comes on shutting it off. So he says, in advance, my policy, strange motel room, first thing, out comes the plug. It's not an issue. I'm not going to flirt with it. I'm not going to be tempted by it. I'm not going to be in a position to be influenced. Fifthly, verse 9. Not only do these people flirt with fire, but verse 9, they are deceived by the darkness. Verse 9, read it with me. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. This young man flirts with fire in the darkness because darkness there is this deception I will not be seen turn over to Job chapter 24 Job chapter 24 listen to Job quote the mentality of an adulterer verse 15 the deception of the night. Job 24:15. Job writes, And the eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No, I will see me. And he disguises his face. People who morally fall down are deceived by the cloak of darkness which suggests... By the way, when it says in the middle of the night, it's the pupil of the night. It's the darkest time of night. He's not only in the wrong part of town, he's in the wrong part of town at the wrong time. And the implication of the night time is, nobody will know. I'll get away with it. Nobody will see me. Beloved, firstly, God sees you. But secondly, it's rarely, if ever, true that no one sees you. I mean, you can be anywhere, any place, and somebody you know can see you. I had a man leave the Civic Center of a home show in Alabama. <laughs> he had no way of knowing this. It was late. He had a booth at the show. It was a big deal. Hundreds of cars. He makes a left-hand turn out of the Civic Center parking lot. He goes down to an adult bookstore. No one will see me. And do you know what? Another member of our church happened to be at the home show, and he happened to know that guy's car. And he just followed him on a fluke because he wanted to say something to him. And he ended up following him into an adult bookstore parking lot. You know what I've learned? It doesn't matter where you are. When God wants to find you or expose you, He will. 
And it's a lie and an illusion, a deception of darkness which says, no one will see me. Yeah, they will. And yes, God does. You know, one of the things about darkness, and this is just kind of a sub-point of that, the darkness creates isolation. And when people are alone, they are vulnerable. You see, what the darkness does is it not only leads you into the deception that nobody will know, there's also no accountability. I believe lives without accountability are accidents looking for a place to happen. You see, because nobody knows to hold you accountable. I've got seven guys in Birmingham, Alabama that will ask me on Thursday when I meet with them, how did it go in Los Angeles? How did it go with the guys? Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed the fellowship. I I had a good time with the college. Yeah, Harry, how was your moral life? That's accountability. Two choices. I either lie or I live right. That accountability is healthy. And one of the things that darkness does is deceives us into thinking we have no accountability. Nobody will know. I want to urge you, if your desire is to be a holy man or woman of God, find individuals you can make yourself accountable to in every area of your life. The Christian life is not exclusively private. Yeah, there are elements of my walk with God which no one else can know or enjoy, but the quality of my spiritual life is an open book to any believer. And certainly those that I want to lay out my life before so that I can be a godly man. The last principle, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 7 that we will address today. And there are many. I love this passage. And let me challenge you right now. Make this your meditation. Learn the principles that define a life that goes astray so that you can block and create barriers against your own moral compromise. The next principle I find beginning in verse 10, and it goes like this. People, good people who do bad things, not only are deceived by the darkness, but, but also they fail to recognize the appeal, the aggressiveness, and the availability of sin. Now watch this. Notice what it says about this woman who comes out to meet this young, naive, failed to choose an advance kind of man. Verse 10. And behold, a woman does what? She comes out to meet him. Notice what it says in verse 13. She seizes him. Notice what it says in verse 15. Therefore I have come out, these are her words, to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. Verse 21. With her many persuasions she entices him. Here is a news flash on sin. Sin is predatory. You don't have to be looking for it. You don't have to be desiring it. You can just happen to be on the way and it will come to meet you. I was at a Bible conference in Orlando not long ago and I was eating at Shoney's with a member of our board at the, at, at the mealtime there and this, this waitress came up and said, so how long are you guys in town for? I said, we're doing a Bible conference here. She came back a little later and she said, well, I get off at... I, I told Jerry, the guy I was with, I said, Jerry, is it something about the way I look today? I mean, you talk about aggressive. This is something you need to know about sin. It's chasing you. 
It is a predatory world out there. It's not neutral. There is a lion, a roaring lion, seeking souls that he can devour. You need to be aware and to be vigilant. It's aggressive. I mean, you need that little detective show type stuff, you know, where you're looking around corners to see if it's safe. Because sin is aggressive. Secondly, in this part about with regard to it, it's, it's, it's available. <laughs> it's everywhere. Notice what it says, verse 12, this woman who personifies immorality. Verse 12, she's now on the street, she's now on the squares, and she looks where? By every corner. How far do you have to go in the Santa Clarita Valley to find sin? How available is it? Mark Hardy used to work here. He now works for me at Shades Mountain Independent Church. When he moved into his apartment in August, he received magazines the family ahead of him was receiving. You know what kind they were? Yep, that's right. He said, how do I explain this to my wife? He said, I wasn't looking for that. I didn't order that. It came out of nowhere. That's right. In February sometime, Sports Illustrated will send me an edition and my wife will censor it for me. I don't have to order it. I don't have to be looking for it. It's available. And it's aggressive. And finally, the last thing we'll say today, and I just want to suggest to you something that seems to be incredibly obvious to me, but that is sin is incredibly appealing. People who fall down underestimate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of sin. Listen to what this woman says with regard to her opportunity. She says, verse 14, I've got food. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Now, if you understand the Old Testament system, you know that that day she had offered a sacrificial animal, a portion of which was incarcerated or or, or incinerated by the flame, a portion, the breast and the right shoulder, remained for the priest, and then the rest of the animal was given to the offerer, this woman, to be taken back to be eaten as a ceremonial feast of God's grace with her family. And what she was saying to this naive man is, I've got some food prepared, ready to go. There's a feast at home waiting for us. Not only that, notice what she says, verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings. I've got silk sheets. I've got colored linens from Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. I've got perfume. It's, it's beautiful. It smells nice. It's delightful. And then she says, notice it, verse 18, Come, let us fulfillment. Not only food, not only finery, but verse 18, fulfillment. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Now I have a question. Was she lying? Nope. What she was offering was temporary satisfaction. And it might have been fulfilling. And it might have been appealing. And it might have been fun. Sin always looks fulfilling. It always promises temporary pleasure. That's why it's tempting. But don't be deluded into thinking that you make your choices based on the appeal of the options. Don't be deceived that that somehow sin's going to look ugly. Somehow the opportunity isn't going to look desirable. It always does. That's why we do it. So determine in advance, hey, it's going to be aggressive. 
It's going to be available. It shouldn't shock me when it, 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 it comes against me or in my way. And thirdly, hey, it's going to be appealing. But that's not what I make my choice based on. I make my choice based on the words of God which promise life that is truly life. Not a, not a week of pleasure. Not a month of fulfillment. Not an evening of an appetite fulfilled. But a lifetime of it. Two years ago, I traveled home to New Jersey, turned on public television, Channel 29 out of Philadelphia. I heard the announcer say, tonight, folks, we're going to see the greatest matador alive perform. Jose Cubero, the world's greatest matador. Now, I'm not a bullfighting kind of guy. But I was mesmerized by this guy's ballet-like movements. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those things. But they, they take this long kind of, kind of deal that they do in order to get to the final death blow. And it's ballet-like. And he was awesome. And then finally, he took that large sword and he drove it into the back of that beast. The animal went down with a crashing roar. The crowd just went wild. And Jose Cubero walked around the arena. Roses being thrown. The greatest matador in the world. Live television, Channel 29 out of Philadelphia. That beast struggled to its feet. And while he's doing this, that large animal charged from behind. He couldn't hear anybody warn him because the crowd was going wild and he was drinking it all in. And that large animal, I saw it, impaled him in the back, lifting him up and tossing him like a flea. And that night, I witnessed it. The world's greatest matador died. He who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. I don't care who you are today. Without careful, diligent determination. It's not if you will. It's when you will. Bow your heads with me, please. Some of you have already fallen down. And I want to remind you that the forte of the living God is redemption. Forgiveness of sin. You may have messed up your testimony and your moral life. I want to remind you, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made white like wool. For the confessing of your sin, there is a living God who offers forgiveness of sin. Today, for you, a new beginning, a clean slate, a new opportunity. Credibility and integrity start with a holiness, holiness of life. You can have that today. I want to invite you to get right with the Lord today if you're not. What a great time. Beginning of the year, beginning of the semester. Determine in your heart, I'm going to be a moral man or woman. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to be godly. For the rest of us, let's determine to be vigilant and diligent. That we might not be victimized by the power of the flesh and by the prince of this world, to the end that Jesus Christ can receive all of the glory and the credibility that Christ ones bring when they live out His grace. Pray with me. Father, I ask You 
on behalf of this great college community in the place of wonderful blessing and great truth, great privilege and great benefit, unequal perhaps anywhere in the world, that this community would be a holy community, a community of integrity and uprightness. That this community would be filled with men and women who determine in advance, I will be a man or woman of God. And I pray for everyone here, Lord, those that have fallen down, that seek restoration with you at this time, I pray that you would encourage them in your grace, that you would call them to yourself, that you would remind them that you desire to forgive and to cleanse and make new. And then, Lord, for the rest of us that desire to remain holy in your sight and before a lost world who desperately needs to see the witness of Christ, that we would determine to do all we can by becoming students of the Scripture to understand the path to moral demise. Lord, I pray that you would burn into our heart the reality of consequences. And I pray you'd never let us forget that someday we'll stand before you to give a living testimony of our life before a lost world. We ask for your help. We can't do it apart from your grace. And we desire your encouragement today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.